Welcome to Growth Marketing Camp, where we sit down with our favorite marketers to demystify growth and give you the insights to help turn your next campaign into a major success. Let's get into it. What's up, everybody? This is Bobby Narang, co-host of Growth Marketing Camp. I am super excited to be joined by Chris Walker. He is CEO of Refine Labs. Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, Bobby. Really happy to be here. I'm looking forward to uh, diving in today. Yeah, absolutely. I am eager to dive in as well. I, I think one of the things that excites me about our conversation today is that it's pretty clear that you're, uh, you've got some pretty strong convictions about the current state of B2B SaaS marketing, and, and I definitely want to dig into that. But before we do that, maybe, and actually, even before I ask you any questions, give our audience just a, I don't know, 30,000 foot view of who you are and, and what you do. Yeah, sure. I, uh, I would consider myself a, uh, an engineer, an artist, a content creator, an entrepreneur, and a business person. So like the, uh, in a breadth of different ways, coming from a background of engineering and then product development and product management, and then moving into uh, mainly like, I would say, marketing and then owning a business. But I believe that I have a view that is unique from others having the broad breadth of a view of a business and looking at a business holistically versus looking at it of like my little piece of marketing or my little piece of sales. Mm -hmm. And when you broaden the lens, you really, you, you, you see different things. Um, so I think given just like my vantage point, how I look at things in my experience has given me a, a really unique perspective about the things that are working and the things that aren't in B2B marketing today. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate that overview and it actually, it speaks to one of the first thing I wanted to ask you about, which was your experience as an engineer, because I think it's fascinating to, to understand that you're, you've transitioned in your career from engineer to product marketer, to marketer, to entrepreneur and business owner, but you touched on it a little bit, but I want to dig in a little, a little bit more in terms of, you know, what it means to bring an engineer's mindset into like a marketing role and ultimately obviously a business owner. But I mean, I imagine the components of systems and being able to have a broad view and, and how understand how things are all interplaying together. I, I imagine that's a part of it. But do you mind maybe just extrapolating that on that a little bit about on how your experience as an engineer has maybe impacted your capabilities as a business owner and marketer? Yeah, I mean, I think looking at things at a systems level, looking at things from a really technical perspective, understanding the metrics of one part of a system and how that may or may not impact metrics in another part of the system, depending on how the system is designed. Mm -hmm. um, it gives you a really interesting way to dissect a business and understand what are the most, what are the best avenues for growth right now in the midterm and in the long term. And I've been doing that in my career since 2012 before, like I had any real like experience companies would bring me in and I would yeah. go and I'd be, I, they would hire me to do something, which is like, I'd give you an example in 2013, they hired me to like fix this quality control problem in manufacturing. Right. And so I got in there and in two weeks, I'm like, this quality control problem has no business value, right? You have like 0.001% defects. It's just, let's leave it at that. But over here, we're spending four or five times as much on materials as we should be, and it's killing our gross margin. So what if we just went over here, we started resourcing these parts, and instead of us costing us $11 to make this piece that we're gonna sell for 60, it costs us $2. And then you can think about how the growth can accelerate in the company when you improve gross margins at that level. Yep. Um, and that, nobody told me to do that, right? It just felt intuitive. So that's one way I just like going into a business understanding, like here's a big opportunity. And then I just can like, from 2014 onwards, I just saw the same pattern of B2B yeah. companies know how to do sales. They can't figure out how to do marketing. They think that they have a sales problems. They're hiring 
sandwich sales training and they're hiring more SDRs and they're hiring a new CRO and they're doing everything to try and fix the sales part. And what's really broken is that buyers are doing things differently and buyers need marketing in the journey and marketing's not doing real marketing. And so I've just consistently seen that pattern. And I believe that I figured out a, a better way, a, a way that fixes a lot of the current issues and pain points in B2B marketing today that are caused by outdated thinking and outdated rules of how to, how to do, how to do it. Okay. So that's, that's really helpful. And I, and I think one of the takeaways from, from what you've just described is your ability to kind of observe a system holistically and, and identify perhaps what's broken or what's not working as efficiently as possible. And it sounds like that mindset has helped you to kind of frame a point of view on, on marketing that you've kind of touched on at this point, but, but let's, let's actually break it down a little bit. If you don't mind, like what is, as you view the system as a like B2B revenue organization or go to market team, like what were some of the broad problems or things that were broken that you were observing in the context of sales and marketing? Yeah. So, uh, one that I remember vividly was the first thing that came to my mind when you asked that question is that I, in 2016, I was, I got hired to basically do sales enablement and field marketing, like, okay. right. So in a, in a medical device company, like marketing, that's what it means. Yep. Build trade show booths, do like ABM events with customers and then go do big sales meetings and be the subject matter expert. That's what it was. And so I would go with the sales team. I would fly from Boston to California, from Boston to Idaho. And I would go to the meetings where a rep was meeting with a buyer and I was there to like provide subject matter expertise or, or special for the specialty that we were doing. Yep. And I could immediately feel that every person that we were talking to was not interested in buying right now. <laughs> okay. And, and so, and if companies really think critically and they look deeply, what you will find is that your sales team is most often talking to people that do not want to buy right now. And they're spending their time trying to convince somebody about the reasons why to buy as opposed to having somebody that's already convinced that they want to buy and then a salesperson helping them facilitate the transaction. Absolutely. And so that was the the number one thing. And then again, people are like, okay, we need to go and hire Sandware. Like our people aren't able to ask enough. We need to go down the pain funnel. We need to do all these things. And it's like, no, you need to change the person that your sales rep is talking to. Mm -hmm. That person needs to be highly educated, has talked with their peers, has most likely been in dark social channels and talked to other people that do their job and asked whether or not they've had a good experience with your product. Yes. Then they know they probably know the pricing. They might have allocated budget for it. They've gotten their team on board and then they're talking to your sales rep. That's how a modern B2B buy-in journey actually happens. But that companies still set up the structure where sales should sales talk to people that don't want to buy with the hopes of convincing them to buy. And I just yeah. think it's so outdated. Yeah. So so it sounds like if I'm hearing you correctly, that Really, if I'm a modern B2B SaaS marketing organization, my objective should be oriented around getting as many people that perhaps we don't have like a, maybe think of them as like almost like offline, like while they're offline, getting them to a point where they are ready to buy. So getting someone to the point where they're actually ready to buy seems to be like maybe the primary objective. The, the way, yeah, the way, the easiest way to think about it is when I was, when I was doing this, I still do it today is. I pretend like there's a buy now button on the website yeah. and my goal is to get someone to go through it and Absolutely. buy now. Absolutely. And most marketers are not, they're trying to get someone to give you their email address so they can pass them to sales and call it a day. It's a mindset because it's really, there's, there's not a lot of measurement around it. It's very much more psychological, which is like, I need to get this person to understand these specific things because I know what they need to know. And I've taught them in a way so that now they are open to considering buying or they want to buy. And that to me is real marketing. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of my dirty little secrets about this show is that I, I personally get a lot of, I'm able to get a lot of insight that I think benefits me and my company like directly. So hopefully it benefits the audience as well. I, I, th- I think it might, but basically, you know, it, in our perspective, we drive a ton of our high intent purchases through paid ads on Google, where people who are searching for specific terms who are showing that intent end up coming into our funnel. If I wanted to create a larger abundance of those types of conversions or those types of interactions, where do I begin? Like, what, what does a company like ours do to uh, address sort of the challenge that you're describing and, and increase our sort of high intent engagements? Yeah, totally. So you need to figure out how to create demand. And so when you're in Google or places like that, you are by definition capturing demand because the buyer has already indicated they're solution aware and in the market to buy something which makes that a very small percentage of the available market, right? So that the volume of people that you're getting through Google is probably way less than 1% of the entire market. And so you are capturing demand, but you need to go up the chain and figure out what is driving that person to go to Google and search. What are the things that happened before that? Where are they getting information? What are those triggers? And you got to figure out where are those happening because they don't happen in Google. And then so then once you reverse engineer, like the places that we see it happen most often across the scale of 55 B2B SaaS companies that we work with right now, social networks, communities, third-party events, direct word of mouth with peers, content platforms like Apple, Spotify, or YouTube, those set of places are where B2B buyers hang out every day mm-hmm. they consume information to learn. They spend time with their peers. They decide what business priorities they want to solve. They actually go and get people on board. They take content, they share it internally with their company to get other people on board. Mm-hmm. And then they actually go and do it. So all of that facilitation of buying is where the action is in order to do it. But the problem of why B2B companies don't do it is because you can't track it like Google. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that that makes sense. And and I know that there's a lot of literature that and content that I think you've created around attribution. We can talk about that in a moment. Because what you just described is sort of this idea of meeting your market where they are. And it sounds like, you know, they are interacting in social channels. They're, um, and let's just talk about that for a minute. Like if I'm, if I'm a B2B brand, like ultimately social channels, there's competition for attention, I think to some extent, because I think about my own social media habits and like, sure, you know, I'm kind of a Twitter and LinkedIn side off of Instagram as of late, but I guess competition for attention everywhere. Yeah. So, so I guess like, tell me a little bit about that because, you know, what is a B2B brand, SaaS brand in particular, do to stand out? How, how do you capture that attention? Where are some of the core tenets to, to be effective at capturing attention? Yeah, I mean, first I want to just, uh, I want to dig into the point of like the attention is competitive everywhere, right? When you built your trade show booth in 2007, yep, there were other booths there and you needed to figure out how to get people to come to yours, right? If you're trying to cold call people, other people are getting calls and emails. How are you going to do that? So it's not just social networks. It's literally everywhere you're competing for attention. And so, and then what was the question? The question is, is how, what does a B2B brand do to stand out? I mean, like yeah. to, to, to your point, you have, you're, 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 you're competing for attention everywhere, but in the context of social, like the, what, the, key to, the key to standing out is having a deep understanding of the people that you're talking to. Most companies miss there. Having subject matter expertise and authority that can deliver the message properly and having a point of view that your people care about and you know that they care about it because you you understand them well. And so those three points, not there's no MQLs, there's no website visits, there's none all the metrics that companies use to s- score the success of marketing pushes marketers to do things that don't involve this piece of strategy that is necessary in order to win. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's really that simple, like understand your buyers, understand where they are, understand the things that they don't understand or the ob- objections they have, what they think about your product relative to competitors in the status quo. And then over time, try and change their perception. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And, and do you view this sort of approach as an all or nothing type approach? Do you view this as complementary, supplementary to call it more traditional or old school? I don't, I don't know how you want to categorize sort of like, like the way things old school playbook. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, yeah, it can be totally supplementary. It depends on what your strategy is, right? Like, so we don't consider it supplementary because we're playing offense and we realize that if we don't do, if we don't spend a million dollars building trade show boots and we don't spend $300,000 collecting MQLs and content syndication, and we don't spend $500,000 running lead gen and paid social, and we don't do all the other stuff that B2B companies spend their money on that doesn't work that well. And we spend all of our effort doing things that do work that it creates a huge competitive advantage for us. And so mm-hmm. if you are in the advanced tier, then you would recognize that you, it's, I wouldn't treat it as supplementary anymore, but for a lot of companies you should, because you got to figure out how to make the new stuff work before you abandon the old stuff. Mm-hmm. Another question that I, I'm kind of curious about is it, it, in terms of activating in, in a manner that you're describing, and, and, you, and you broke it down earlier into and pardon me for not remembering, it was yeah. dark social is the one that stood out to me, but you had a list of like three or four things that you mentioned sort of around yeah. succession as a part mm-hmm. of the overarching strategy. Mm-hmm. Is, is there a relationship between the effectiveness of that and say like your TAM? Like, like for instance, I know community is something that you talk about a lot and, and it's like an objective. It's something that you should be striving mm-hmm. to, to sort of build. Like is the size of, a, is the impact of community sort of like proportional to like the to total sort of like market size? Because I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking like, yeah, I'm just, I don't know if that question makes sense. And if it does, it does. Make- yeah, it, it does make sense. I don't think that's the case. I actually think that it would be much easier to be successful with smaller total addressable markets because you could be way more narrow and more specific and more niche. So like, I think, and like, just because there are less total accounts doesn't mean that the size and revenue of the market is larger or smaller, right? Like, I think there's a thinking that the internet creates more scale. And so when you had more accounts, that it would work better. But when you also have more scale, oftentimes lower pricing, lower, harder, like tighter lines of customer acquisition, you start to get boxed in. And so I don't think that there's an impact on total addressable. I think that you can win in both cases. The reason that companies with small total addressables don't win is because they only think about things like sales. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You only you only got 200 accounts. All you're doing is having 200 accounts get sold to every day. And that's, yeah, not, yeah. A, that's not a community. Right. And then I, I also want to ask you about it's just an interesting time right now because I feel like right now SaaS companies are getting absolutely murdered in the in the markets, but they're coming off okay. tailwinds of you know some pretty aggressive growth, pretty historic growth, so on and so forth. I think there may be some some impact of, of COVID on on cloud cloud businesses. But I'm wondering, like, are there companies B two B SaaS companies out there that are doing it properly? I'm, I'm just curious, like, who who are some some of the brands that that we should be paying attention to that maybe doing things that you would actually say, yeah, they're actually nailing it. So I don't like, just because I understand how much attention I can bring to other other companies that I don't like actually calling any of them out. But I will say that if you want to know how to do it, you can definitely observe how my company does it. And I believe that in terms of the execution of our strategy, we're the best at it. And in terms of execution of like purely on like a LinkedIn strategy, I believe that we're the, literally the best in the world at a company perspective and how we do that in terms of how we set up our people who are 
evangelist subject matter experts, not salespeople trying to get leads. And about all of the different things that we do, create behaviors that are customer centric, that are built for how buyers want to buy today. So I just recommend observing what we do. So, so let's talk about Refine Labs. So you started the business, or how, how long has it been? 2019, is that right? Yeah, it'll be three, three years in April. Awesome. And so again, the, the genesis of the business is based on some, some really strong convictions about the current state of, of marketing, but tell us the story. I mean, walk me through sort of, you know, what was the sort of uh, straw that broke the camel's back that said, you know what, I got to go do something about this. And, and, and what's it been like over these last three years? Cause as you mentioned, you obviously have a, a very strong presence online. And I imagine there's some, it's gotta be interesting to kind of observe that occur, observe that occur over the last couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. So in, in 2016 to 2018, I worked at a company called Vapotherm. They were a series D company. They eventually IPO'd and I basically, the only thing that company cared about was we'll give you more budget if you de demonstrate that you drive more revenue. So, and when I did that, I started doing a lot of the things that you read in a Salesforce ebook or a HubSpot blog. And then you do this activity for six months and you get like 30 K ARR and you're like, I'm not going to be able to grow my budget or scale things this way. It's so fascinating how marketers don't look at that stuff on their own and do, do the same thing because mm -hmm. they just have a budget allocated and they just spend it. And then I started to say, okay, like we need to do things differently. What if I, like, I want, we have a clear value proposition that when explained to our customers, they understand it and they want to buy it because it's a clinical story about like the clinical data shows that if you do this, you get this result and it's better for your patients. So I was like, why don't we just tell that to people in a bunch of different ways? We started using paid, ungated content, video ads. We did a video podcast. We had a video podcast running in 2016. We were using Facebook ads target at exact accounts, ABM, if people want to call it that. In 2016, I remember going in to Facebook and you could, you have to select one by one the companies. And I did that for 500 accounts. It took me forever. Yeah. Um, and then you had your entire list of companies you're going after. We had content and different things like that. And what I saw as I was doing that is that revenue was growing and I saw all the differences in how attribution was measuring it. Right. And I was like, okay, so we had a, we had a blank slate, not a lot of like, there was nobody coming to our website six months ago asking to buy stuff. And what did we do? We started a podcast. We started running Facebook ads. We bought a little bit of Google ads. And now all of a sudden we have more buyers that are coming and asking to do something. So we got some signal noise. Something's going on here. We eventually shut off the Google ads and recognized the Google ads were not part of that mix. And it's like, okay, so it's literally social and podcast driving this, but attribution is saying direct traffic and organic yep. stuff where all the yep. revenue is coming from. That's the attribution mirage that I've been talking about for a very long time. That scaled up to millions of dollars in net new revenue on a $30 million business at that time. Significant net new growth with it for a business that is mostly an expansion revenue company. Mm -hmm. And uh, that company eventually IPO'd. And then when I looked out in the world, I saw that nobody was doing marketing this way. Yeah. Nobody was thinking about go to market this way. It was still very much sales focused. Let's try and get people that don't want to buy right now into means with our sales team, then they'll convince them to buy. And that's just the revolving cycle of what B2B companies do because of how they've been doing it for the past 10 years and what marketing meant to them now not thinking about the difference of what buyers need today. And so I saw those different patterns, which is basically there's a huge opening. It's like, okay, it's like if you had a, the secret to something, to doing something better and nobody else knew about it, it was yeah. like, this is an obvious, an obvious way to start a business. I had no idea that it was going to turn out to be this incredible place with the most talented people that I've ever worked with and a great team and a great culture. It turned out to something really, really cool. But the opening of the business opportunity was there. 
in 2019, there was nobody like I knew all the stuff that I knew now, but nobody was knocking on my door to do a podcast. No customers weren't saying, Hey, we want to come work with you. Companies weren't saying, Hey, come talk to my 200 person marketing team about how to do marketing. And I knew the things, but what I recognize is that people need to know the things that you know, in order for them to even consider working with you, marketing, right? And who, who would have thought somebody that understands marketing is good at marketing their own business. Right. And then when the, it was getting started up, I heard all the same dumb shit that people do right now. It's like, oh, LinkedIn would never work to grow your business. Why are you doing that? Go and hire SDRs, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Go and hire SDRs. That'll never work. Oh, you're trying to change how companies do this. This is never going to work. Your business will never scale. Yep. Go and hire a couple of freelancers. Have fun with your lifestyle business is what one founder talked down to me at. Wow. And, and uh, I think over the past three years, through thoughtful execution, we've made meaningful movement with the goal of literally fundamentally changing how B2B companies think about go-to-market. Yep. And literally through just straight execution proving to people that it's like it's crazy we have more than fifty thousand people listening to our podcast and cmos that listen to the podcast then become customers of ours yet they don't think the podcasts work <laughs> i i have a couple of thoughts that that sort of are triggered based on what you just described and the first one is like you, you think about the way that you know the institutionalized practices of business drive some of like the the behaviors that you're talking about so for instance like mm. you were talking about the budget that you were allocated in your previous role and how you had to go spend it and make a a, a return and then you'd get more budget and you just think about the, the conversations that marketers need to have internally when they are granted say like a half a million dollar budget well guess what next year you got to have that conversation with your cfo saying well, what the hell did we actually get from it and that's sort of institutionalizing this sort of reliance on your attribution reporting, your your, your traditional yeah. metrics. And so so I think that's interesting and, and definitely sort of like a, a reinforcing sort of quality of some of the things that you're describing that are so old school. And, and then the other thing that comes to mind, I had a conversation with, uh, his name is Sean Herring. He's the former VP of marketing at PandaDoc. And, you know, he was talking about some of the experiments that he was running that were sort of like, not sort of like these traditional go-to-market plays. And, and I asked him, like, how are you going to have that conversation with your CFO? You know, how are you going to justify, you know, the effort that you've put in? And, and he had a really, I think, smart perspective on it, which is what is your single most important metric? Okay. And, and I think about it in the context of our business, well, I want to know, I want people who are submitting for a demo. Like that to me is like the most important thing. Does that number go up or go down or stay the same when you are engaging in activities that maybe don't have clear cut sort of attribution or immediately visible ROI? And it sounds like to, to some extent, like that's kind of one of the ways that we need to think about marketing in the context of the, 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 the systems that you're describing, which is what's the most important thing to you? Like, forget about all the leading indicators. What's the indicator? Yeah. Is that, is that amount, is that going up or down? I mean, is, am I, am I hearing you correctly there or is it, how would I, I sort of modify I would, it? Yeah, I'd modify it differently. It's the, it's, it's the amount of revenue that gets created through your website. Like I think about the the website, like our number one sales rep, right? In an enterprise SaaS motion, the sales rep still needs to sell the deal, but it comes through the website. It's yep. basically generated that way. How much revenue gets created through that? And is it growing? Then it, depending on your sales cycle, you need to set up a time window. So we look at what we call hero pipeline for a first period of time, which is basically pipeline that you're going to win at greater than 25% that your sales AE is already qualified. 
And is that number growing as a leading indicator? And then you back into demos being a, like, so that would be sure. like the third, third part, but demos can be a misleading number on its own. So we look at later funnel metrics to basically like anything, it strips out anything that's like the garbage that a lot of people do. Cause right. You can turn on ads, LinkedIn ads and run a bunch of people to do demo form and get more demos. Doesn't mean sure. that people are going to convert to meetings or buy. Sure. So then may I ask in, in that context, then, I mean, what's like the lead time? Like when you're talking to your clients, what is your expectation or level setting that you have with them? With, Look, we're, we're going to make this investment now. There's going to be a ramp up period. And then you'll, you'll see the, like, what's the conversation like when you're talking about the lead time in terms of like activation to impact on, on revenue? Yeah. I mean, it's going to take us about six weeks to actually just like get everything built, tracking, reporting, media, creative, audience targeting, strategy, six weeks, getting everything started. And then from there, like we're looking at within one to two fiscal quarters uh, beyond that to have a meaningful lift in pipeline, typically within the first 90 days. Um, and we're targeting about at least a uh, 20 to 30% quarter over quarter growth rate, which would then equate to a more than 100% growth rate year over year. I mean, that, that's incredibly powerful. How could anyone say no to that, Chris? Because they get caught up in, in the institutionalized thinking about what marketing should do, right? So they don't think about it as we're getting 20 to 30% more pipeline. They're thinking about, we just got 60% less leads. Yeah. And so there's this, there's a, a lot of inertia in how people think that don't really understand marketing or maybe just understand marketing and how it was done in 2012, which is really just pre-sales. And so there's a lot of ingrained thinking that that even though that value proposition makes 100% clear sense to a CFO, may not make sense to everybody. Well, this goes back to the original point, though, about using systems a little bit differently. Because the system's broken 100%. when you're looking at it holistically. Like, it may make sense in the context of the CFO, but may not make sense in the context of the revenue organization at a, at a whole. Is, is what you all are doing, like, fundamentally, like, do, do you see it as, like, an unstoppable force? Do, do, you, do you see, I mean, if you just look at, I guess, the, the perception and, and the actual growth of, of your brand and, and what you all are bringing to market, but... Do you see the shift as being the next thing? Do you think it's going to, you have a competitive uphill battle in terms of changing minds and hearts? Like, tell me about sort of like what your outlook is on the state of marketing as you sort of see some of the additional impact that you're having on the businesses that you're working with. I think unstoppable force is a good way to describe it. I think that there's a clear issue in any B2B company that uses a salesperson to sell deals and how they think about the entire go-to-market for that motion is busted. And they, so they've been, they used to do just the demand waterfall from serious decisions and they did that and they're like, oh, this doesn't work anymore. Now let's go to ABM and ABM is nothing more than doing the same shit with intent data instead of MQLs and two mm -hmm. accounts instead of leads. It's the same thing. Just like your sales team calling people that don't want to buy, trying to get means for people that don't want to buy. Mm -hmm. um, so that it was like, take one thing that doesn't work and replace it with something else that doesn't work. And so it's clear that whole system is, is busted. People are looking at product-led as a way to sort of combat the terrible buying experiences that happen in enterprise SaaS because they're, they just are so internally focused and sales-centric. So you move to product-led, but then when you work with product-led companies, you see that it's not all gravy in the product-led side. They're very good at getting people to sign up. They might be very good at getting $9 a month customers, but then they want to go out and they want to land a thousand user enterprise customer. And that doesn't really happen touchless automatically. And so in both of those instances, there's always going to be an enterprise sales motion in, in these instances. And that is the place where we're going. That's where we solve. And so we're building a 
new go-to-market motion that will replace the serious decisions demand waterfall that B2B companies will adopt at scale. I expect that thousands of companies will adopt this over the next three to five years. Well, look, I'm like super, super intrigued and interested myself. I think, you know, we're, we've dipped our toe into the water in terms of creating content. I think we've probably got ways to go in terms of like really nailing it in terms of putting the things that our market cares about. And I think that's certainly something that I'm, I'm interested in exploring further, but I see it. Um, I understand it, uh, what you're describing. I also understand sort of the old way and I, and I think it's, it's exciting to kind of like, to just kind of project out you know, what type of impact this might have. And, and, and this goes back to sort of the conversation I had with your colleague, Todd, it's just, you know, for us, um, in this very narrow thing that we're doing right now, it's just consistency is key. Uh, it's not necessarily a build it, they will come. It's a create and engage type approach and, and we're excited and eager to kind of pursue that. But, um, this is a bit of Yeah. I wish people would think about it like art, you know what I mean? But you got, you make something, you put it out, you get feedback and then you go back and you make something else. Um, and I think that people get so caught up in like, oh, like this didn't work as well or other. So it becomes very externally focused and it should really be internal driven of like, what am I trying to do? And how do I, how do I put something out that's better tomorrow than today? So yeah, I just feel like people should simplify. Let me ask you one more question here, because I think this is really important. How would you empower somebody in a market organization today? to make the pitch internally, to adopt some of the views that, that you're espousing in terms of B2B SaaS marketing? Like what's the approach? Because I think internal selling on like pivoting an approach is one of the ways I think that impact can, can happen. I'm just wondering, do, do you think about that at all? Like, how are you empowering marketers who might be able to, whether it's adopt your approach or work with you directly, like what's the conversation that you're, you're guiding them or, or hoping that they'll have internally? Yeah. I mean, we. We do this at scale through our content every day, right? So we empower people that want, that believe in this stuff to use content that's available to share it in internal Slack channels, which happens at scale to other people in the organization for them to understand certain things, which then make that have changed their perception about how to do certain things. So that's how we do it. I'll admit that like the reason that I started my company was because no B2B company that I could interview for would do marketing the way that I wanted to do it. So you are at the moment in a small pool of companies that will actually make these changes. And so I found it can be a quite an uphill battle as a marketing leader, trying to get people that don't want to change, that don't recognize there's a problem, that don't understand buyers that well to fundamentally change this perspective because it's, it's just very, it's very counterintuitive. Mm -hmm. um, and so my recommendation always is to, instead of trying to convince people that don't want to be convinced, find people that are already aligned with what you want to do. And maybe that requires finding somewhere new to work. Yeah, I mean, it's a great point because I mean, you just think about the way that the world has changed so much in the last 20 years. I mean, you and me, I, I don't exactly how old you are, but we've been on the forefront. I mean, I was one of the, I was one of the first people to have an iPhone, right? Mm -hmm. I remember like the pre-internet days and then getting the internet. And um, ultimately we will eventually be in those positions, right? Who are going to be making big decisions, who are going to be able to, to, to allocate the budget instead of ask for it. And so uh, it also may just be like, you know, it's just a matter of it's time. happening back right to the point. Yeah, it's happening. I don't know what the stat is, but quote unquote, millennials are a huge part of the actual decision makers in B2B today. And that will continue to grow 
it's not it's not going backwards you know what i'm saying and so as that continues to grow there will be a shift in how that how that all happens which is exciting right like i think that this changes i've literally been talking about this stuff for like seven years and the change the change for the past seven years is, has been meaningful but really slow compared to what it should be like it's crazy to think that that the situation with COVID was a major accelerant to this process. If that had not happened, how stuck B2B companies mm-hmm. still would be today. Yeah. So there's just like crazy things to think about, but there's a big opportunity here. And I think that it's one of the most empowering things for marketers and salespeople today to just acknowledge the difference of what things work. And then if you can just lean into the differences rather than resisting them, you just create a huge advantage for yourself. Totally. I, I gotta let you know, I'm, I'm super impressed by your passion about this. I think you're, you're totally a pioneer in frankly, a, a, an ideology in marketing that clearly has impact as well. Um, so really, really impressed by you and what you've built, um, and, and sort of the message that you're bringing to market. If our audience wants to learn more about you and refine labs, they probably already are familiar with you, but where, where could they find you? Uh, yes. If you'd like to learn more, I post uh, daily content on LinkedIn. You can find me at Chris Walker. And also on our podcast, the State of Demand Gen podcast, we post three episodes a week of deep expertise content and demand gen go-to-market advertising, content marketing, et cetera. Um, and so if you are interested in that, would uh, encourage you to check that out on Apple or Spotify. Awesome, Chris. Well, uh, again, our, our, our audience, we encourage you to check that out because there's a lot of awesome, I think, really, really just interesting and meaningful content that's coming through that channel. Chris, really appreciate you taking some time out of your day to join us on Growth Marketing Camp today. Bobby, this was a blast. Thanks for having me, man. Thanks for listening to Growth Marketing Camp. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you would give it a quick five-star rating or share it with a friend or colleague looking to get a little more inspiration for their next campaign. If you want to learn more about the company behind the show, head to opensense.com. That's O-P-E-N-S-E-N-S-E.com. We'll catch you on the next episode.